Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hi, Mallory. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to record with me today. Thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, it's an honor. So um, why don't you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about your background, where you're from, and kind of like your academic journey that's led you to where you are now as a PhD student at UCSB. Sure. So um, I'm not from California, even though I live here now. I'm actually from a very tiny town on the coast of North Carolina. It's called Beaufort. It's very scenic, but not many people there, like less than a thousand people. Um, So I went to a tiny high school. I knew everybody in the town and um, I watched a lot of History Channel as a kid, (laughs) as I'm sure like other people outside of this tiny town did, right? Like I'm sure you've watched like a Mm -hmm. lot of History Channel. Yeah, I was also big into like the archaeology movies, like (laughs) Indiana Jones, etc. So I actually never saw those until I was actually into archaeology, weirdly enough. Um, But I watched a lot of History Channel specials and I remember as a high school student being like, wow, I would love to be an archaeologist one day. That would be so much fun. Um, But being from a tiny town and it was very cognizant of the fact that I was a woman and that there were only certain positions in which uh, you could be very autonomous in your career. And that's something that's really important to me to be in control of my own work and to be able to work freely without somebody really directly supervising me intensively. Um, which is something that I think that many of us love. So I was like, what are women doing in those positions? And uh, the only women around me that I saw doing that were doctors. So I applied to a variety of colleges, but went to UNC Chapel Hill, and I uh, wanted to be a primary care physician. But I fortuitously chose anthropology as my degree because I was like, let's diversify myself. (laughs) And uh, little did I know, I really liked it. And so it was like through a tete-a-tete, heart-to-heart with a women's studies professor during her office hours my first semester when she was basically like, you gotta just, if you like archaeology, like you should just do it. Keep taking classes. So I took one of the greatest gambles in my life and I... uh, enrolled in all archaeology classes the next quarter or well it was semester there and I said well this is either gonna work and I'm gonna love it or (laughs) I'm gonna hate them all and uh and I just learned like about that you could switch your classes you know in that first week uh all this was really new to me so I was like the first person in my family to go to college I was the second person to graduate high school so that really um, has an impact it does the whole college experience is just so wild and if you you aren't like prepared going in it's it's a lot and then choosing majors and trying to yeah like you said classes it's it's a lot 
Yeah. And to give you like you guys, the listeners to some context uh, about how we all make mistakes sometimes when we don't know these things. Uh, my first year, I filled up my FAFSA completely wrong. And it said that my contribution was like $20,000 or something. And I was like, oh my God. So I applied for every private scholarship that came across my radar. And I managed to fund my first year with that. That's impressive. Yeah. But uh, all of us make mistakes the next year. I filled it out correctly. (laughs) So I took... I took a variety of archaeology courses that second semester, and one of them was with Dr. Ben Stepanitis at UNC, and he's a North American archaeologist. He works in the Southeast. And at the end of the uh, semester, I'd done this paper for him that I really liked. It was on, um, I was kind of researching the manufacture of pipes among Chesapeake Bay peoples, native peoples, and seeing uh, and examining evidence for native peoples making English pipe styles to sell to English uh, inhabitants because, you know, transporting all of these goods from England to the New World was actually very costly at the time. And so we know that a lot of African-American and Native American peoples were making these English-style pipes to sell at market, and they were very desirable, right, because they were cheaper. So I really wanted to kind of look at this issue further, and he suggested exploring this idea with some Catawba pipes that were in the collection. And Catawba is a Native American group that lives in modern-day South Carolina. So I got started really in research really early um, and on a research project of my kind of own design. So I went straight into independent studies and, and really worked through that and had more experiences, went into the field my first year, um, and it really developed that way. And so I started with Vin and I kept working with him continuously. And uh, I took a class then with Dr. Margaret Scarry, uh, also at UNC, who's a paleoethnobotanist. And I knew I wanted to kind of do archaeology, but I hadn't found my niche, you know. Archaeology is one of these things that you have all of these different compartments that you can fit in regionally, specialty-wise, temporally, and you have to find what kinds of things you like and what kinds of things you don't. And um, I really like working with numbers. I like finding patterns. Um, And I learned through this paleoethnobotany class that I had a real knack for pattern recognition uh, visually, which is really important to to paleoethnobot. So I liked a lot of the pieces of it. And so I asked, same thing, I asked Dr. Scary if I could do a kind of independent study with her and it spiraled out into an independent study and then an honors thesis. And... um, And this is all to say that my undergrad experience, I was really lucky to have some incredible mentors who changed my life completely. Um, I had a really difficult upbringing and there was a point at which even kind of everything that I owned was in my car. And Dr. Scary had had me um, house it for her one summer. And it was a real gift because I actually 
didn't have another place to go, really. I just moved out of the dorms. You know how that happens. Yes. Yes. And you're, so you're like, I would otherwise be couch surfing. I don't know. And so I, I, so she asked me to house it. And I said, you know, uh, Dr. Scary, I called her Margie, you know, I, I have all this stuff and it's in my car and I don't have anywhere to take it. I, I don't know what to do. And she said, you know, we'll make some space in the basement and you can put it under my house as long as you need to. And uh, so these two mentors and, and Dr. Steve Davis as well at, at UCSB or at UNC, <laughs> Dr. Steve Davis at UNC, he, he does North Carolina archaeology. All three of them when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the kind of almost parental figures I never really had before. And they supported me in such a way that it made me really believe in myself. Um, and so they helped me along the way. And, and Dr. Scary, she kind of like had this vision of like places I would apply. By the time I was ready to apply to grad school, it was amazing. Like by the time I was ready and I was like, hi, so Margie, I'm interested in applying to grad school for paleoethnobotany. She was like, I'm so glad you've made it to this point that I knew you would make it to. Here are the people I think you should apply to work with. <laughs> I'm in a bit of a similar situation myself. It's like, I, it's going back to what you were talking about. I just think that's so heartwarming and impactful and just wonderful that you had those mentors. But it really just makes me think about how you know, when you're in that position as, you know, a TA as well, or a professor, you really have the ability to impact your student's life in a real way. You know, you can really help guide their path. You can help support the person that they want to become. You can help give them resources. And I'm really glad that, you know, that you had those opportunities. It's, thank you for sharing that with, that with, with, Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the amount of people that I have helped me that I'm thankful for, it obviously doesn't end with undergrad. I mean, yes. uh, you know, I've been at UCSV now. This is my seventh year, I suppose, wow. and out of the eight-year eight program. And so, um, you know, Dr. Vanderwerker, Amber Vanderwerker here, and Dr. Greg Wilson have been amazing, outstanding mentors that have really picked up where my undergrad mentors left off and challenged me and guided me in productive ways. And I think one of those things that's so powerful for students, at least that's been for me, is to find someone that you feel like just understands what you need more than you do yourself. Um, and so people who understand that, like, for instance, the way that I learn best is I kind of 
do things or I have the freedom to explore and think creatively. And I don't have someone necessarily like breathing down my neck, whereas other people like that sort of check in and control that helps them to maintain their focus. And so to have someone who knows you on that deep level that you don't even think about yourself is such an empowering kind of thing that they have your back. It's so great. Definitely. And for our listeners, we have, we had Dr. Vanderwerker on the podcast and you can go back and listen to her episode, which was a great one. She had, you know, all, all the, all the amazing advice that, you know, she tells all her students. And um, so you know, you were saying you applied to grad schools, which brought you to UCSB to do your MA and your PhD. And, you know, since, since you've been at UCSB, I'm going to brag for you. You've distinguished yourself. (laughs) I I mean, first of all, I pulled up your CV and it's like nine pages long. I was like, oh my goodness, you have, you have so many research and academic achievements, but I think what's also important to discuss is that you've given so many guest lectures, presentations at conferences, you know, organized workshops and TA'd for a lot of classes, which Ultimately, you received the Dean's Graduate Mentoring Award for Undergraduate Mentoring, which is congratulations, amazing. I think I want to hear, what do you enjoy most about your role as a TA and your ability to help mentor undergraduate students? Yeah, so uh, hearing about my past and my experience, you can probably see why I value mentoring so much. Um, There are a couple things that I find really powerful about it. Um, One of the things is that Being a mentor, you can give somebody a set of skills that even if they're not going to do what you do, you can feel like at the end of the day, you've given them a piece that they can take and follow whatever their path is. So I've had a lot of students who, you know, they don't go on to be archaeobotanists or things like that, but I can say, hey... I've given you like the PPE or chemical hazard training skills that you need to do a laboratory position after this. Or So I feel really special to be able to give back in that way. And, um, and as a TA, even in the span of a quarter, which it's so short, it's 10 weeks. Um, one of the powerful things I like to see is how students grow and how students learn and to kind of facilitate that process and make it an engaging one for them. Because my role as a TA and as an instructor, I see it as me being a person guiding someone to a certain set of knowledge or a certain set of skills. So I try to personalize it for my classes um, as much as I can to help them learn because the goal is not to like, it's not to make me feel better about, you know, pontificating on my knowledge. It's to get them to whatever place they want to get to themselves. And so uh, being on that journey, just having the privilege to be on that journey with them is a really powerful thing. That's, that's lovely. Yeah, I think definitely. Um, Cause in case anyone listening doesn't know, I'm also an undergrad Uh, I've had, you know, such impactful TAs, and Amy Anderson was one of them, um, who I then ended up having as a teacher as well. Um, So clearly, you're passionate about education and disseminating your research, which I think is a very important part of being 
a social scientist or a scientist in general and, you know, making sure we're getting public engagement with that work. So what is some of your biggest takeaways or things you've learned from all that public engagement with your research? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. And something that I think in our modern day is very salient to archaeologists. We have to make an impact beyond just spiraling articles for a small audience. Um, so one of the things I do is a way of outreaching to even other archaeologists. So I do these workshops where I talk about um, microbotanical analysis and macrobotanical analysis. So for people who aren't familiar, it's analysis of carbonized plant remains, uh, radiocarbon dates on those plant remains, and analysis of really small microscopic things of plants that we see in like residues um, or on people's teeth. You can analyze ancient teeth, the calculus that you see scrapes off at the dentist, like the worst sound ever. And I'm sorry, podcast listeners, <laughs> if that just came through like jarring. <laughs> um, but you can analyze that to see what people ate in the past. And so this is a really specialized field in archaeology. I can't kind of emphasize enough that there are very few people doing this kind of work. So one of the things I do is outreach to other archaeologists and say, hey, I want to be very transparent about what exactly I do and how to best collect these samples. I want to give you the tools you need to collect them in the right way and then to be able to give them to someone and get the results that you want, because uh, this knowledge isn't usually shared and people, it makes sense. People don't share these kinds of things because they want to have very good job security and they want to be able to be the only mm -hmm. ones that know this special yeah. thing. When in reality, replicable processes in science are are the basis you know that's what's important in research and making sure we can compare samples from different sites. Absolutely. And so one of the things I do is outreach to other archaeologists that way. Another thing that I do is uh, my reports that I've done, and, and Dr. Vanderwerker has been very diligent in this as well. The ones that I can put online, I will put online because they will otherwise not be published. They would fall into gray literature, and they need to be accessible to other people. Um, and one of the things that I'm also looking forward to doing with my dissertation is being able to put um, some maps that I will make from my dissertation of the the field photos laid out so it will be oh we can talk about this more as we get to my research but um, one of the beautiful things is that you'll be able to see how these urban centers changed and grew or decreased in size over time um, through these maps. And one of the things I'm going to do is share these maps with the local communities and also available online without the aerial data, of course, so these sites won't be looted. Um, but they're under plantain fields. So I can't show you an image, but I can kind of paint you a picture. And all of these sites are completely covered with fields today. So no one even in the local communities in Guatemala where I work, they don't know about these sites because you can't see them. And so one of the powerful things I think that we can do as archaeologists is make the unseen seen um, and do that in a way that doesn't encourage looting of sites or damaging of property but at the same time makes it very visible to people who don't have access to things. And I think part of that 
inspiration that I have for this kind of outreach is related to my upbringing in a pretty rural community um, and not having access to like the resources that other people like publications or things like that like um, so you have to find ways to make what we can make available to the public available accessible and interesting definitely and then to the local communities that we're working in making sure they can understand you know what the work is that people are coming in and doing and hopefully it can help you know shape their understanding of if they're indigenous you know their local history and you know the the past sites that they work you know work on now if if their family is from from that area it can be really interesting to kind of trace that back. Um, so I think this is a good place to kind of dive into the specifics of your research. Um, so you work in the Integrative Subsistence Lab on campus with Dr. Vanderbarker, and you focus on, as you were saying, the archaeobotanical remains um, to provide new perspectives on the critical periods of social transformations in various parts of the Americas, including Guatemala and Peru, as well as southeastern, midwestern, and western North America. So um, do you prefer lab time or field work? Because obviously in that, in those studies, you're doing a lot of both. Yeah. So it's a really interesting question. Um, and it, it, one that you sent me before, but I thought, huh, I'm not really sure how I feel. I, you know, I will say I work in the field in a lot of environments that are not ideal like they're very hot usually like where i work in guatemala is 110 degrees and where i work in illinois has been like you know 90s 100s yeah so i'll say that sometimes i do get fatigued of the field because i mostly just i get tired of putting on a heavy Mm -hmm. sunblock all the time i am i i burn very easily (laughs) so i will say when when i get the long stents i think six weeks to eight weeks is about my my tolerance, my comfortable tolerance. Yeah. And then after that, I have to like develop these mechanisms of like kind of coping and, you know, dealing with my grumpiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that, but I love like the camaraderie that you get in the field. Um, but I'll say that for my lab work, it's one of those things where I just could keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could, but of course not just doing the processes without doing the analysis and the write-up and the, the critical thinking. I couldn't be a lab drone. So I guess you have to have the balance in your life. And I find a lot of joy in writing. Um, and I find that for me, I communicate best through writing if I write to somebody, I know that everything I want to say is coming across. And so I have to have those those different pieces, definitely. I have to have all of those parts. And so I know that wasn't a very satisfying answer, perhaps, but I have to have pieces and I can't have too much of one thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think especially field work. Sorry, to no, it's you. okay. I just think it's it's always interesting for people on the outside looking in because I think that sometimes, and I say this because when I came into UCSB, I didn't understand how much of archaeology is lab time. So I think for people on the outside looking in, it's interesting to see kind of how those different 
um, parts of research kind of play into your overall daily life, your daily job, you know? Um, and that's, I definitely understand what you mean about writing. Writing is a very powerful communicator. Yeah, I think that, uh, that lab time is one of those things too. You can spend it different ways depending on what you do in anthropology or archaeology, right? Um, you might have more of like number crunching or you might otherwise have more of like kind of qualitative analysis of iconography, right? What does it mean? Mm -hmm. uh, how does this connect with other things? So it looks different for different people, but I love most that beautiful moment when you're surrounded by other like-minded people who want to help and work on different projects with you and you're all kind of like spinning your wheels in the same space and that's really fun thinking yeah. about like almost you being in multiple places at once but having different versions of you with different types of ideas and inputs like I mean the special moments are like I, I had this intern um matt medrios um who came in one time and he was like hey so i was thinking last night that maybe we could use like a, a new silicone colander in our uh, our instant pot like that we used to sterilize equipment and he's like then all the slides wouldn't fall out and you're like okay matt like why don't you buy it and I'll reimburse it with the grip. But I love when people come like with new ideas, like you can only think of so much in a day. And so, yeah. Sleeping yeah. on, sleeping on ideas. I mean, I literally came up with the podcast at midnight. I sprung out of bed and wrote out, I'm not kidding, the name, the mission statement, everything, some guests that I wanted to have on. I woke up the next morning and I was like, okay guys, so here's the podcast. Like sleep, sleeping on ideas can just be so interesting. It's just the little cogs in your brain are just turning. <laughs> oh, definitely. I know. Uh, and, but then being able to get to sleep after having those ideas is the tough part. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so why don't you walk us through what a typical day in the field looks like for you? Yeah, so when I'm in the field, I, I play, I have a lot of different hats. So in this most recent project um, in Guatemala that I worked on this field project, Dr. Michael Love at CSU Northridge, who has also been a very inspiring and amazing mentor to me, especially in terms of working in Guatemala. He's taught me a lot about how to navigate relationships with people in the field there. So I wear a lot of hats. So one of those hats is supervising flotation and flotation is one of those things. So that's the collection of these macro botanical remains, these carbonized pieces that we can see with our eyes. So it's one of those things where you can kind of outsource it to other people working in the field. Um, but you need to be there to make sure that those people understand what they're doing and the quality control. So we are very fortunate to work with an amazing family, the Ramirez family, that has multiple generations of field workers who have worked with Michael. And so uh, we've got this great guy, Angel, who is like, he loves flotation. I have never seen somebody who their passion, their deep, true passion is flotation. So without Angel, I would have to do a lot more quality control, but he really takes care of it. So when I would go out in the field, I'd kind of check in with Angel, make sure he's fine. And he self-appoints like assistance for himself, uh, other family members. Um, so he's great. Uh, so I'd go kind of check on Angel and 
I'd also have some times where I would need to step in and supervise like an excavation section, like a unit, um, and work with that if we were like low on field hands or we just needed to expand and do it quickly. Um, so supervising that excavation is another thing. And in Guatemala, uh, American workers or non-Guatemalan students and workers are not allowed to excavate. Mm -hmm. It's only Guatemalans. And that's done to really protect uh, cultural heritage, for sure, and to provide employment, for sure, for local people. So part of my thing is those kinds of two hats, the field supervisor and kind of checking in on flotation. And then when I get time, I would go back to the field house and maybe sometimes I do this all day and, uh, and collect these residue samples. I was talking about these microbotanical residue samples and take notes about them, put them away, um, and sometimes go through the flotation samples from previous days to see, hey, are we actually finding any plants in these, these samples? Do we need to sample as intensively? And that's one of the beautiful things with the field is that you can change your strategies depending on what you find on the fly. So mm -hmm. that kind of uh, real-time analysis is really powerful. So if I go, if I went back to the field house, you know, I would enjoy doing analysis and uh, watching a couple telenovelas with the <laughs> uh, local house staff. Yes. <laughs> um, so that was always. But your fun. Spanish is good from those. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I know, I know probably the worst words to know yeah. for a difficult conversation from those, but uh, I will say I will, we're always looking to improve as people, and mm -hmm. for me, uh, learning other languages and learning Spanish is one of those things that doesn't come naturally, so I have a proficient working knowledge of it for sure. I'm a better at writing than speaking, um, but I'm always working on it. Uh, I find that that's one of those things that if I can find a couple minutes in my day, just finding some time to work through some exercises or talk with my colleagues in Guatemala in Spanish uh, really helps to keep me in the loop and keep me focused. So let's go into some of the specific details about your research questions that you're interested in in Mesoamerica at the sites of La Blanca and El Custe. Um, so this is your dissertation project, and uh, it's the field site that you were talking about earlier that's covered in plantains, which just makes me think of plantain chips, and I literally bought them at Trader Joe's the other day, and they're so good. Um, so how do you hope your data from these sites will contribute to the chronology and archaeological understanding of formative period Mesoamerica? Yeah, so this is a great question. These two sites, let me paint the picture for you first of what they um, what they mean to archaeologists. Uh, they're both early urban centers on the Pacific coast. So the Pacific coast is one of the first places in Mesoamerica that we see urbanized life emerging. That means people congregating and living together um, in, in clustered groups, let's say, to an extent. So it's a really powerful context for examining how we as humans organize ourselves when we start to come together and we start to deal with these problems that are associated with living in conglomerates. So La Blanca comes before Elahushte. La Blanca is inhabited in the middle formative periods. That's about 900 BC, starting then to about 500 to 400 um, BC. So 
It's very early on in LeBlanca. We start to get people coming together from we're not really sure where, but probably relatively locally. So one of the questions that I will answer in this a side project, uh, looking at strontium data from teeth from people at LeBlanca and Alahushte is where did these people come from? Um, and so that's one of the powerful things that we actually don't know, one of the questions that we have. So getting back to the dissertation, um, LeBlanca is a very early urban center. And so we start getting people coming together. And then Alahushte is about 14 kilometers away. And that's in the, the this transition from the middle to late formative. So it's very interesting. LeBlanca is basically abandoned at the same time that Alahushte is formed. And so Alahushte is also inhabited for a very long period of time, around uh, 500, 400 BC to 100 CE. So we get two places where people are living together and they're both inhabited for a really long period of time. And at El Ahushte, we get this gridded site layout. It's much larger. It's actually a center of a state, a very early state. Um, so you start getting delineation of more social positions, perhaps hierarchically. So we've got all of these changes happening. Um, and some of the questions I have are, how could we look at the plant remains, which eating is something we do every day, right? How can we look at the plant remains and see um, diversity socially throughout these sites? So social diversity is a big component in the identification of early cities. Um, and LeBlanca and Alahushte, these, these early Mesoamerican cities don't often fit a lot of these criteria that people have for old world cities, like big monumental stone things, you know, uh, having big economies, having really conglomerated um, settlement areas. So social diversity is one of these ways in which we can kind of make this argument for urbanized life and urbanism in Mesoamerica. So I want to see in these long occupied places a couple of things. One, um, were people living in groups kind of similar to what we have today in cities like uh, ethnic or economic enclaves, right? So we have these parts that kind of naturally form. So in these early urban centers, does that happen? And can we see that through food? Um, because sometimes they aren't segregated into neighborhoods and the neighborhoods don't have labels, right? Like these are the people of this, or these are the people who have this much, uh, this much relative wealth. So food's one of those powerful ways to do that. Another thing I want to look at is urban sustainability. So one of the things that we have struggles with today is keeping cities going when we have lots of people, lots of mouths to feed. And food security is something that I've examined in my other uh, research in different areas. And so I want to know what kinds of subsistence strategies are the people at LeBlanca and El Houshte using to keep this going? Because this isn't only an urban experiment, it's a really early one. And it seems, at least in my opinion, as a pretty successful one in terms of long-term occupation. Um, so I want to know what kinds of things did they eat and how did they eat them and how did that work out well for them in certain circumstances and um, 
And what can we take away from that to understand better how to keep our cities going and what kinds of foods could sustain our people for a long period of time? And our people doesn't mean just me taking back these findings and saying, how can we help Americans? Our people is thinking globally about how can we solve these crises of food security and how can we deal with this idea of, um, of how we all live together in an urban environment? By looking so important. Yeah. So cool. So interesting. You, you gave such a great lecture in um, Amber, Amber Vanderworker's uh, cultural development of Mesoamerica class that I'm currently taking. And I was just, you, you did a very great job of tying everything together. Cause obviously in that class, we're going, you know, so into depth about ev- every detail. And I really enjoyed that presentation. Um, so one of your most recently published articles that you sent my way, and can I, will I be able to link that for the listeners? Yeah, so you'll be able to link it, but I don't know if people will be able to download it without an institutional um, okay. subscription, but I will give you the share link. And so people can access it and at least read the abstract mm-hmm. and the intro material. And if you have an institutional subscription, you'll be able to download the full article. Okay, great. So, um, and also the co-author is a UCSB grad that used to be one, um, undergrad that used to be one of your interns, which is super cool. And congratulations on getting this published. So you were explaining to me that it's particularly important and relevant because it will help provide criteria for other researchers to identify different types of chuno, or is it chuno? Chuno. Chuno. Um, which are freeze-dried Andean potatoes in the archaeological record to help us better understand potato domestication. So tell us all about that. Yeah, great. Um, So this article was published in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. So um, we're really thrilled to bring this research to an international audience. And another one of the co-authors was also a UCSB PhD grad who had newly minted, uh, Matthew Buer. Um, and he works in the Andes, who's really instrumental in bringing in this context from this area and this expertise. Um, so chuño, this type of freeze-dried potato that some people say tastes like feet, um, but is a very storable resource and a well-preserved resource um, that serves as a really ready source of calories in the Andes even today. Um, it's a highland food. It can only be produced at certain elevations. Um, and there's two types. There's chuño blanco and chuño negro. So chuño negro, it has this dark black color, and it comes from being exposed to the sunlight to dry out, whereas Chuño Blanco has a very white exterior, and it comes from being soaked for a long time and then dried under blankets, so it still keeps that moisture in it. And so these processes of freeze drying and washing, they actually help to um, detoxify the potato and it's thought to be really useful in, uh, in priming early potatoes, wild potatoes, to be domesticated, right? Because it's cleaning out a lot of these toxins from them and making them palatable to people. So finding the beginnings of chuño is so important to actually get us closer to finding some of these beginnings of domestication. And one of the parts, we talked about different types of plants that preserve archaeologically in terms of like different ways of getting at plants. And one of the ways that is most hardy 
is starch analysis. Um, and that's found on residues and in the teeth, like we talked about. So this can be a really powerful way of identifying chunyo in the past. So one of the things that, um, that we explored, it was just kind of like this article happened by accident, as many <laughs> things do. So, All the best things in life. <laughs> oh man, yes, definitely. So we were trying to identify, trying to see if we had Chunyo in this assemblage from Kilkapampa, this Metal Horizon settlement in Peru. So we wanted to see if we had Chunyo there. So we looked at some samples that some colleagues sent us of Chunyo Blanco and Chunyo Negro from Peru and Bolivia. And so I collaborated with this undergraduate researcher and my, my friend, um, Matt Buer, and we, we, uh, we measured starch grains from these two types of chunyo. And I, me being very quantitatively oriented, <laughs> yeah. as I said, um, I looked at uh, patterns in there. And so we found not only qualitative differences between the two chunyo types, but quantitative ones in terms of the length and width. And that's due to mostly the, without going into the gory details, the rehydration of the chunyo blanco. So those starches become swollen and bloated and larger than the chunyo negro starches. You can see this also in looking at the grains. So this article reports that um, these criteria that we've established for differentiating these two types of chunyo in the past. So we can actually now trace back um, through archeological remains, the origins and the timing and the places that these types of food processing technologies started to be introduced in the Andes. So um, hopefully what we hope to provide a, if through this article is a really powerful set of tools that other researchers can use to identify these early things. So. That's fascinating. Um, and did you, I'm assuming that that all got started kind of pre-COVID and then you were able to publish it just recently? Correct. Right. The publishing process in archaeology is a long one. Yes. It's a long <laughs> haul. Um, and so this, all these measurements were done pre-COVID and the analysis was done pre-COVID. And we are very lucky to have all of that together. And so the write-up and putting together and the kind of presentation was done um, afterwards and right before COVID kind of uh, restricted all of our lives. Yeah. So now I have a fun question for you. We love our anthro dogs on this podcast. You got to meet my Daisy uh, before we started recording. I have to ask you how your adorable and very smart dog Gizmo is doing. You have to tell our listeners all about him. <laughs> yes, so Daisy was very adorable for the listeners uh, yes. to communicate that. Uh, Gizmo is a three-year-old golden retriever. He is huge and fluffy yes. and lovely. He's an incredibly smart dog. Um, and I've been, I've had the wonderful privilege of being able to teach him a lot of fun things. So he can open the fridge, grab you a water bottle, bring it to you. Um, he can tell his lefts from his rights. So if you oh hold up two gosh. hands and you ask him to any touches, like you can tell him to touch, but you'll say right and he'll pick the one on his right. Versus, so sometimes I, I, I trick him and I do right, right, left, right, and I get him to touch oh. back and forth. And 
So yeah, he has a lot of fun with life and he has he has three loves in his life, three different we call them lovies. There's mm. there's stuffed animals mm. and they have different purposes. Mm. He's 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 too much like me. I mean, I swear. <laughs> he has one for eating and digesting. He has one for general play and he has one for like nighttime and they all have their roles. <laughs> I love it. Daisy's yeah. starting to become a little bit like me too. <laughs> I don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy for these dogs to become like us. But yeah, it's kind of weird to see yourself reflected back at you. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear Gizmo's doing great. He's enjoying running around. I heard the yard and everything. Oh, yes. He... He loves to inspect uh, where the squirrels have been. He, uh, he, he met squirrels recently, and uh, he's just fascinated by them. He's yes. like, these creatures that yeah. run. And <laughs> Daisy's tails. obsessed with birds. Like, she won't chase them, but any bird noise she hears, she does the head tilt. She puts your ears up, mm-hmm. and she does big head tilt. <laughs> uh, so lastly, um, you have some anthropological related content to share with our listeners because it's something I've been trying to do. I either do it or I ask the guests to bring something just because I know we're all a little bored right now. And sometimes it's just fun to engage like beyond the podcast with some interesting materials. So I'm curious what you have to recommend for us. Yeah, so I have something to share that I haven't vetted before, but that is on my to-read list. Um, That's great. So, that works. Yeah, so you you guys can read it along with me. Um, but it's this book that is well-regarded, brand new, 2020, called The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, A Natural History. Ooh. It's by Greg Wolf. He's a professor of classics at the University of London. And so this is a book that's about ancient cities in the old world right in uh, in europe and the near east and um he may involve some maybe he mentions mesoamerica but the focus is mostly in the mm-hmm. old world and so i love reading about historians takes on like parts of history in the past because as archaeologists, we have a lot to learn from how other people talk about events and how people frame events. There's this great article um, by Ray Fogelson, and I'll mention that too. I just mm-hmm. a call out. Yeah, I can also link that. Yeah, and I'll, 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 I can send it to you. It's called The History of Events and Non-Events, I believe, or it's something like Events and Non-Events. And I read it as an undergrad, but it was so impactful. So Ray Fogelson was a professor of American studies, and um, he thought very critically about uh, writing about Native American societies and peoples. And so he was thinking about how we frame events and that sometimes in Western perspectives of reporting history, we think about these, these moments, these either one day or one year as being defining changes in our lives, right? So like the day that World War II ended or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but sometimes in non-Western societies, like Native American societies, conceptualizing time is a very different thing. And so it's not necessarily focused on when did something begin or end. Sometimes it's focused on what was the experience of being in that time period, right? Or mm-hmm. what are the other things that we use to mark the ends or beginnings of of things. And so that's his point in looking at non-events. And so um, 
anyway, that's, that's, that's those are two things that I love. Yeah. And so I think that by looking at historians' works, anthropologists can also learn a lot about how we conceptualize time and social change. Very interesting. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to talk to you and um, lots of great info. I'll have all of her, you know, her publications, the link to your lab website in, in the Dr. Vanderworker's lab so they can, you know, delve more into the research should we have some people whose interest is peaked, you know. Um, I also, you know, if we have UCSB listeners, I always like to say, you know, reach, reach out to these grad students. Like, I'm sure they more th- would be more than happy to meet you and engage, especially once eventually we're back on campus. Who knows <laughs> what's oh, going to happen. Yeah. yeah, and I love talking with students about uh, where they are or just general advice that they need. And I'm always happy to yeah. Zoom with people and chat. It's it's nice to get some human interaction in this uh, definitely. world. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful.